B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone, if I have to, on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Let's pray together. Oh God, a little melody out of the distant past, but it calls us to this moment in the life of this learning community. Today we remember that we have been founded on the rock-solid B-I-B-L-E. But it's not enough to confess that reality. Oh God, grant to us fresh, a fresh intelligence with this book. Grant to us a bold faith through this book and teach us this morning a path you have called us to through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, open your B-I-B-L-E right now. Let's go. Let's plunge into this single line of ancient Scripture that for the life of me, I, I am absolutely convinced what we have here is the portrayal of an academic community just like us. Just one line. That's all we're going to consider today. Just one line. Open up your Bible to the New Testament, to that uh, book of history, the book of Acts. If you sang the B-I-B-L-E when you were a child, you also memorized this line. But you and I have never worshipped around this line in our time together. But today's the right day. The book of Acts. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's the same translation that um, I'll be reading from, the New King James Version. Coincidentally enough, I have the Andrew Study Bible right here in the pulpit. Hallelujah. It is a wonderful Bible. Got mine right at the beginning of June. And it's been a joy to plunge into this. I know the writers, as our president reminded us from every continent, but a lot of them are right here. I know these scholars, as you do. And so to have their, have the misty likeness of their friendship, their presence in our midst while I'm reading their notes. It, it, there's, there's no Bible on earth like this, and I do hope you'll get one for yourself. You know, I, I, just saying that, and I didn't do this for a service, but uh, our, our college chaplain, Karen Toms, mentioned when we were on a staff retreat this week, two days, our senior leadership off-site, and she, we got into this, and she said, you know what, some of the kids are saying that you're just selling Bibles in church. I'm not selling a Bible in church. You can have any Bible you want. Nobody has to go out and buy this. I think it's a wonderful gift, 400 of these that we're going to give to the new students starting tomorrow. But what does it hurt for a learning community to return to, to be reminded of her roots as we are this weekend in our fall faculty and staff fellowship? So, let's go to this old, blow the dust off of Acts 17, verse 11. Acts 17, verse 11. Let's read this together. You may have memorized this once upon a time. Acts 17, verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, hold it. Put the, hit the pause button right there. We're not going to unpack the, the narrative here and the, the historical context. We don't need it. But I do need to tell you that these are the inhabitants of a little uh, Macedonian village called Berea. We affectionately remember them as the Bereans. So the, 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 the heroes of this one line are the Bereans. They live in this little village like you and I do. These, now we read it again, these Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica 
in that they receive the word with all readiness and they search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. I want to, I, I want to affirm to you, being an academic community as we are, that we have scriptural precedent for being who we are and what we are like right here in the single line. Two clues right here. Clue number one is this word for um, these were more fair-minded. This is the New King James, fair-minded. Eugenes, that's the Greek word, the ancient word. Eugenes, you, it's two parts. You means good. So that when you go to a memorial service and somebody reads the eulogy, that's the good word of the one we're remembering today. You means good and genes means born. So you put the two together, you have good born or you have well born or you have high born or high status. Which is why most of our translations sitting on our laps right now will render this, these were more noble or noble-minded than those over there in that other village of Thessalonica. But interestingly enough, eugenes can also be translated, get this, open-minded, which is why the New King James renders it fair-minded and the New Revised Standard comes along and says they were more receptive. I like that. The Bereans were, are, are here being extolled as thinkers who probed and searched with their minds, very much committed to an open-minded pursuit of truth. And I'm thinking to myself, that, that is straight out of academia. Isn't that what an academic community is known for? An open-minded pursuit of truth. But the second one is the clincher for me. The second characteristic that means we can find meaning. You and I right here in these lines. Read the verse again. Verse 11. These Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. It sounds to me like the Bereans were from the state of Missouri. Now, you know what Missouri is? What, what, what do we know Missouri as? The show-me state. I mean, please, show me. Prove it to me. Every university community that you and I know is really a show-me community, is it not? I mean, there isn't a professor here who will accept anything by anybody until she has done the research and has confirmed, yeah, I can believe in this. I checked it out. Show it to me. They'll not let us in our, uh, our, our reflection and Bible study this morning over in the H-Pack. Did a masterful job with uh, Exodus 3, the story of Moses and the burning bush. And the point he brought out, five characteristics, but the one that really attracted me, curiosity. Why? Open-minded. It's the same. Academic communities are known for this curiosity, this open-mindedness. The Bereans. Isn't that amazing? Here are these Bereans who search the Scripture daily with a show-me kind of spirit in order to find out if these things really are so. Whether this new teaching from this vagabond duo named Paul and Silas can really stand up to scrutiny. Bereans. Hey, listen. That's the Christian academic community. That's the Christian Adventist academic community. A community of learning that probes every tenet and examines every truth. Show me. Prove it to me. Let me say something right here. I don't want to be like the preacher who got up and said, before I preach today, I want to say something. But I'd like to say something right here. I've had the privilege of living for a few years in an academic community. 
And I can assure you there is no place on earth that I know of. All right, you may know of another one. But there is no place on earth that I know of more inviting and conducive to a probing, examining, questioning kind of learning like the Berean community than a university campus. That's why we got raised up. But, now here's where I'm going with this. Those who do not live in such a community are sometimes too quick to pass judgment and criticize the Berean mindset that exists in a Christian Adventist academic environment. This divine gift and calling to press and to probe the limits of human knowledge and understanding, this willingness to challenge every tenet of truth as the Bereans did, they're challenging truth. They're saying, wait, Paul, I don't, know, I don't know if I believe that. Hold on, I've got to check this out. This openness to confront and examine even untenable conclusions for the sake of finding truth and or confirming truth or contrasting the false theory with the truth needs to be understood by the wider community of faith. Please don't misunderstand me. Nobody's advocating. I am not advocating that truth should be rejected in favor of error. Nor am I suggesting that open-minded seeking for truth means the advocacy of or the embrace of contrary theories that are clearly antithetical to the revealed truth of the Word of God. But, as the Bereans remind us, And as the inclusion of the single line into Holy Scripture clearly teaches us, it is a noble enterprise to receive the Word and then search the Scriptures daily to ascertain whether what is propagated or what is proposed stands up to the light and scrutiny of the eternal. So those who live outside of an academic community would do well to be reminded... That God made certain Acts 17 verse 11 would be included in Holy Scripture as a divine benediction upon the open-minded, probing, questioning of His community of faith. Read it again with me. Acts 17 verse 11. These Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what is so stunning to me about this divine endorsement of human inquiry and intellectual examination, particularly for our generation? What's so stunning to me is the focus of their probing. Did you catch that? These were more open-minded in that they searched the Scriptures daily. I mean, come on, please, let's be honest that in today's culture and climate, to suggest a daily examination of Holy Scripture would be to invite the polite, at best, the polite scoffing of the literati of the day for whom open-minded and Holy Scripture are are a blatant oxymoron. I mean, please, how could you possibly put, speak of open-mindedness and Holy Scripture in the same breath when everyone knows that the only ones who read and believe the Bible are closed-minded, like a trap, closed-minded fundamentalists? Isn't that what they're saying? But of course. But the fact of the matter is, now listen up, the fact of the matter is, nobody is more hypocritical than the secular academy. 
The secular academy whose intelligentsia loudly extols the virtues of the open-minded pursuit of knowledge, but which immediately betrays its own small-mindedness by declaring that the examination of belief in Holy Scripture is the height of closed-mindedness. Come on, cut me some slack. The very community that prides itself in its open-mindedness can be the most closed-minded of all. Reminds me of Alan Bloom's book that made him famous. Malcolm Russell, when he used to teach here, sent me the book back in 1987. This is when uh, Bloom's book came out. You remember the book, The Closing of the American Mind? Some of you old-timers remember that book? The Closing of the American Mind. In the book, Bloom critiques and criticizes American higher education, which all too easily closes its mind and doors to any thinking that challenges its own thinking. And so... For a generation that finds the notion of a daily searching of Scripture preposterous or antiquated, I would like to share with you now seven compelling reasons for the veracity of Holy Scripture. I believe in these seven, in the composite of these seven, is a powerful argument that the Bible, in fact, deserves both. But the Bible, in fact, displays both intellectual trustworthiness and historical reliability. So I want to share them with you. And I'm sharing them with you because it occurs to me that there may come a moment in your journey one of these days when you will pass them on to someone else who needs to know. They're all that our study guide today is. Pull out your study guide, will you please? They're the seven. Seven compelling reasons for the veracity of Holy Scripture. Thank you, friendly ushers. Just hold your hand up. You didn't get a study guide. You'll want to make sure you get these seven. Hold your hand up. We'll fill the study guide out together all the way up in the balcony, please. Just hold your hand up. And uh, let's get going, ushers. All right. Bless you. Just hold your hand up. Give them a little bit of time. Cut this side uh, by surprise. And we'll get going. Now you had all summer long without study guides. See, that's it. That's what happened. Well, we'll get back into it. All right. To those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. Glad you've joined us today. This is a high day here on this university campus. I'd love for you to have the same study guide. So if you go to our website, let me put it on the screen for you. You see it there, www.pmchurch.tv. Please go to our website. You're looking for a standalone. This is a standalone teaching, title of the teaching. This is the title you're looking for. The Holy Scriptures are like unto cornflakes. When you see that title, it'll say right underneath it, it'll say study guide. You click on there and you will have the same study guide we have and that we are going to now fly through together. Seven compelling evidences for the veracity of the Word of God. All right. Keep your hands up. The usher has spotted you, and he's coming, or she's coming to you. But I'm not going to wait. Let's plunge into it. Seven compelling evidences. Here they go. Evidence number one. Would you jot it down, please? We'll put it on the screen for you. Preeminence among literature. Okay, we're looking for something, something to assure the trustworthiness, the veracity of Holy Scripture. Number one, preeminence among literature. Now, look. People accuse Christians of defending the Bible by using the Bible. We call that circular reasoning. So let's not do that. We're not going to go to the Bible at all. Whether you believe it or not, keep your hands up on this side, please. They're coming for you now. 
Whether you believe it or not, the Bible stands head and shoulders above every other piece of human literature throughout history. Let me give you some examples. Under this reason number one, jot it down. The Bible is preeminent in its circulation. Jot that down, please. The Bible has been read, in more, been read by more people in more languages than any other book in history. Now, here's where your pen starts moving. It is now translated into 400 languages with portions of it in 2,500 languages. Wow, keep your pen moving. The Gideon's International placed, you know, you go into a motel, you open the bedside drawer, you have a Bible in there, that's from the Gideon's, all right? The Gideon's International placed and distributed more than 56 million complete copies of the Bible globally in a 12-month period. That averages out to a million copies a week or 107 copies per minute are going out across the face of this earth. There's no other book like it. It is preeminent. As we just noted, it is preeminent in literature. Okay, so number one, it's preeminent in its circulation. Number two, it is preeminent in its influence. Jot that down, please. Preeminent in its influence. Its influence on other literature and books is incalculable. More books have been written about the Bible than any other subject. And get this, more authors have quoted from the Bible than any other source. Preeminence. Preeminence in circulation, preeminence in influence, and jot down one more. Preeminence among religious writings. James MacDonald, in his book, God Wrote a Book, makes the point. He makes it well. And you have it in your study guide. Saying that any book, anywhere, written by anyone, could on any level compare to the Bible, would be a statement of ignorance. End quote. Seven for me, compelling evidences for the veracity of Holy Scripture. Number one, preeminence among literature. Number two, jot it down, preservation under attack. This is a no-brainer. You've known this, haven't you? The Bible has always been under attack from its enemies. Two kinds of attack. Attack number one is the attack of man. Jot that down. The attack of man. People have devoted their lives to destroying God's Word. No other book has been so banned, so burned, and so banished as the Bible. In history. In history. In fact, Voltaire. You remember Voltaire? What, two and a half centuries ago, Voltaire, the great French infidel, predicted that Christianity would be destroyed within a hundred years of his lifetime and that the Bible would only be found in a museum. Today, you can only find Voltaire in a museum and the Bible continues to be the world's fastest selling book on the planet, bar none. Amazing. Somebody came to me afterwards, an anesthesiologist, David Blue. He said, hey, Dwight, you know, I've also heard, and I haven't had a chance to verify this, but I'm taking Dave's word for it. I've heard that the European Bible Society's first headquarters in Europe was Voltaire's old home. Isn't that a turn? Isn't that amazing? The Bible's been under attack from the get-go. It's been under, under attack, human attack, and it's been under the attack of time. Jot that one down, will you please? Under the attack of time. Because you know what? Some people say, Ah, oh, come on, Dwight, please. The book is so old. How can you have an old book that's falling apart, that's hardly unreliable, it's too old. Some charge the book is simply too old. Really? Let me run some numbers by you. You'll have to scribble very fast because they're not in your study guide. But I think you'd like to have the numbers. Today, there are over 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts. 5,600 ancient manuscripts the Greek New Testament. Jot this one down. 10,000 Latin manuscripts. 
9,300 early versions, and get a load of this, nearly 25,000 early manuscripts of the Bible. Oh, well, that's all. All literature's like that. Oh, really? Listen to this. The next most commonly copied document is Homer's Iliad. Had to read that, didn't you? In your humanities class. Homer's Iliad. The next most copied document is Homer's Iliad with 643 manuscripts, all of them partial. The Bible outnumbers Homer's Iliad 40 to 1. 40 to 1. Go figure. Oh, preservation under attack. That would be number two. Preeminence among literature. Preservation under attack. Jot down number three. Compelling evidence for the veracity of the Word of God. Number three, proof of archaeology. Yeah, look at the spelling on that word. Proof of archaeology. I tell you what, here's what you can do. You want to do this this afternoon? Be my guest. Go to Google and type in the word Bible and then type in the word archaeology and you'll spend hours into next week examining websites. In fact, don't go to Google. Just take a visit to the, to the wonderful Archaeological Museum right here on the campus of Andrews University. Have the curator show you around. Be impressed with the mounting historical evidence of the veracity, the historicity, as the scholars put it, of this book right here. That's all I'm going to say. Number four, internal consistency. This is an amazing one. The Bible is a collection of 40 authors who wrote over, over a period of 1,500 years. First author is Moses. We heard about him this morning. And by the way, a collection of 40 authors written over a period of 1,500 years on the two subjects nobody can agree about, religion and politics. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's it. It's religion and politics. That's all it deals with, religion and politics. Amazing. And yet, it is the most internally consistent piece of accumulated human writing in all of history. So, Dwight, how do you explain it? Here's how I explain it. God wrote the book. Ah, come on, no. I don't mean he penned the book or he dictated the book. Of course not. Human beings did. Which, by the way, is why, like four witnesses to an accident in the middle of a cross, of, of a, of a cross street, you have four different versions of what actually took place there. And everyone is correct. But I believe, and I wish, you, I wish you would jot this down, please. I believe it is the divine authorship of Holy Scripture that is the only explanation for the Bible's compelling internal consistency regarding human morality and divine truth. Number five. Number one, preeminence among literature. Number two, preservation under attack. Number three, proof of archaeology. Four, internal consistency. Here comes number five, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy. Jot it down, will you please? There are 61 major prophecies concerning the life of Jesus Christ written centuries before His birth. We know they were written before His birth. You can date the manuscripts. Statisticians, keep your pen moving. Statisticians tell us that the statistical probability of just eight of those 61 prophecies being fulfilled is 10 to the 17th, which is 100,000 trillion one out of 100,000 trillion. Mercy. They say that that likelihood would be the same as covering, I like this, covering the state of Texas with two feet of silver dollars. Would you like to be in Texas now? Two feet of silver dollars 
over the entire state of Texas, then blindfolding one of you and sending you out into Texas, weighed into those silver dollars, and would you please pick out the one with the red dot on it? The likelihood of your finding the red dot is the same as eight of the 61 prophecies, predictions, coming true. And from my own understanding, I believe 61 of the 61 came true. Go figure. Number, number six. The experience of others. The experience of others. I want to personally testify that as a pastor, I've witnessed the profound spiritual effects that both the hearing and reading of Holy Scripture has had on parishioners through my entire ministry. I have watched men die in peace because of this book. I have watched women live in hell in peace because of this book. I have watched young adults confronted with a life-shackling, addictive dependency, crush those chains that have bound them because of this book. I've watched little kids. I've watched little kids who have learned about this book growing up at home and coming to Sabbath school. And I have tracked those children. I've watched them right through adolescence. I've watched them through, through teenagehood. I've watched them now into young adulthood. And I've seen them become mighty servants of the human race and unshakable followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because of this book. I've seen this book and what it can do. Number six, the experience of others. But I end with number seven, my own experience. Because beyond my observation of others, I need to tell you I have also personally discovered a friendship with the author of this book. And I have found in my own private journey and tasted of the unleashing power that comes to me when I meet him right here. Hey, listen, listen. That is no pompous superiority uh, being exhibited. Trust me. I, I know exactly the, the, the depth of what Paul was describing. Subsequent to being in Berea, Paul would later write the words. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the worst. The NIV renders it. I am the worst. I know that. But because of this book, I discovered the truth about Calvary. And my life has never been the same again. And so I have absolutely no, no hesitation, no qualm about inviting you to come to this book and meet the same one here every day like the Bereans, every day of your life.
Which, by the way, takes away any hesitancy I have in recommending to you the brilliant marketing strategy of Kellogg's. Hey, wait a minute. Kellogg's. Didn't we have something to do with Kellogg's getting started up in Battle Creek? Didn't that come out of our little uh, family tree as a Seventh-day Adventist community? Oh, the brilliant marketing strategy of Kellogg's Corporation with cornflakes. When a few years ago, you remember this? This was just spot on. They came up with this, with this slogan. Taste them again. How's it go? Taste them again. For the first time. Man, how can you do something again for the first time? Brilliant. Because in between the lines of that marketing strategy was a, was a, was a subliminal voice speaking to you. You know what? You grew up as a kid chowing down your bowls of cornflakes every early morning before school. You did it for years, didn't you, boy? Didn't you, didn't you, didn't you? Yes, you did. And then you started to grow up and you developed this, you developed this sophisticated palate discerning. And so you turned away from the breakfast of your childhood and you began to dabble with these, with these magical breakfast creations. You've consumed them now in your adult years. But there's something inside of you that's longing to get back to your roots. That's what this is subtly saying. There's something inside of you longing to get back to your roots. What do you say you go back to the breakfasts you used to enjoy? Why don't you go back to that old bowl of cornflakes and taste them again for the first time? They're still there. It's still satisfying. And girl, it's time to come back to where you began. Brilliant. Taste them again for the first time. And then I'm sitting over here in uh, Bill Knott's presentation and I hear Greg Constantine because he's throwing it open for comment, comments. And so my friend Greg, uh, you know, Bill says, well, wh wh what's the deal about coming back to the Scripture again and again? And Greg raises his hand and he says, you know why that's such a big deal? Because every time you come back to this, and I quickly scribbled it down, Greg, every time you come back to the Scriptures, you're a different person. That's why. Go back to your childhood breakfast. Go back to the Word that you once feasted on before you became sophisticated and erudite. Go back to that breakfast and taste it again for the first time. Because you're not the same kid anymore. You've grown up. You've got a bright mind. You've got an incredible future. Go back and taste them again for the first time. And so I wish you would, because today is pointless. If we just dedicate a bunch of books that came off a printing press, what's the big deal with that? If this doesn't impact me, what's the point of it? And so today, here's the deal. Here's what I'd like to invite you to do. I'd like to invite you to take that cornflake slogan and go back to where you live. And starting tomorrow or whenever would really work for you, begin to sit around that old bowl of cornflakes again. But taste them again for the first time. You know what, will, what, what is good for a fresh journey through Scripture is to change, it's to change the scenery. So change the Bible. Get one of these Andrew Study Bibles. Open it. Read just a paragraph. Read just a paragraph. I'm reading Jeremiah and Romans through right now concurrently. And I'm being so blessed because I know who wrote some of these lines. And so I, I drop down. Just, just read the paragraph and let your eyes brood over a, a thought scribbled below. Taste them again for the first time. Your journey's changed. Your need is greater. Come back to that, come back to that early morning breakfast. Hey, listen, Dwight, I'm not into new Bibles. 
I tell you what, you got an iPad, use the iPad. You want to use your iPhone or your uh, smartphone, be my guest. Nobody has to do it. I'm not, selling a, I'm not selling a medium. But why not go back to the message itself? Any form you want it, just go back again and again and again. I think it's a gift of God that this book would be raised up for a time like this in the journey of the human race to go back to our roots in Holy Scripture. A hundred years ago, now these words in your study guide, I believe they are, a hundred years ago, these words were written as an educating power. The Bible is without rival. Nothing will so impart vigor to all the faculty. Actually, it doesn't read faculty. It says nothing will so impart vigor to all the faculties as an effort. To all the congregation as an effort. To all the community of faith, nothing will so impart vigor to all the faculties of our hearts and minds as an effort to grasp the stupendous truths of revelation. You think about it, if every one of us here at uh, Fall Fellowship and every one of the new students that arrive on campus tomorrow and receive one of these books, if we spent the whole year having our breakfast at the same place every morning, What kind of an impact would that have in our midst? Every one of us.